Welcome to this week's Hotel Analyst podcast, coming to you from the editorial team at Hotel Analyst. Joining me around the desk of insight this week with their thoughts are our editorial director, Andrew Sangster, our perspectives editor, Catherine Doggrell, and me, uh, Chris Bown. I'm the web editor at Hotel Analyst. Uh, this week, we're going to start uh, by talking about uh, a couple of issues that arose from at our hotel operations conference, very successful conference, which happened last week in London. And we're going to start off by talking about uh, the latest musings and thoughts from the third party management companies. Particularly, uh, Catherine, and I believe they're starting to look into moving up market and perhaps grabbing a little bit of action in the luxury hotel sector. Yes, yeah, so uh, traditionally they are known for their dominance in the uh, their enthusiasm for the economy hotel sector, but they're slowly starting to creep up. Not all of the brands are terribly enthused by the idea of franchising out their luxury hotels. Um, we had Marriott talking about how they weren't really interested in that and they were more interested in looking at the management of it. Um, but it raises a few interesting points, um, one of them being if you're a third party and you're all about squeezing the margins and making it count and all this kind of thing, is the luxury sector somewhere you should be wanting? off into where it's not really about margins and it's more about where's my silk towel and who's going to bring it to me but um, if you can find a, a robot to do that whatever I guess there's money to be had um, and of course it's not just about that so increasingly we are seeing the third parties looking at the luxury sector which I think will be very interesting if they can pull it off um, there was also some chat around whether really the brands should be keeping their eye in in um, in managing hotels so they don't come up with extremely alarming things to do and to make the owners pay for such as making people bring you silk towels um so lots of who's who's being the most realistic in this front and uh, and hopes along those lines um and uh, obviously for the owners it's all about power and balance therein and the rise of the third parties has been good for them so far so why wouldn't it be good in the luxury sector hmm don't see why not i don't see why not either i i think um what this does represent though is the coming of age of third party third party operators and it is the the, the final part um, of the vertical disintegration of the hotel industry this separation so we first had the bricks and brains separation more than 20 years old now the the real estate is separated from the brand and operations um, and now we've got bricks brawn and brains where we have the real estates we have the brand and in between is the operator and the third parties are this brawn part um, and historically there has been this reticence by the big brands the global majors to allow other people to run their top-end properties they're just nervous about it's the most important part of their brand image is the most important aspect of what they're they're selling to the consumer in terms of their their, their image um, it's also presumably and, quite a lot of money uh, <laughs> well yes and no I mean I mean we'll, we'll come back on to that in a, in a minute yes absolutely on a you know a clearly a luxury hotel um, which typically is going to be several hundred bedrooms is going to be generating a higher fee income than say um, a select serve hundred bedroom property but you can do a lot of select serve 100 bedroom properties um, for the management effort required to run um, you know that luxury hotel and I, I think just 
going back to this point about the brand image about the how important um, brand is um, to the hotel companies well I, I think this is why this is a coming of age for the third party operators um, the brand companies now feel comfortable enough with them to punt it out there now cynics might suggest actually this is just they're, they're, the big brand companies are so desperate to grow they'll they'll fling anything out there um, I, I, I don't think uh, there may be an element of that I don't think that is the case I, I, I genuinely think that they've got to a point where they are comfortable now with these established third-party operators and say look we will do this there's always been a sort of very binary um approach to this will they manage won't they manage i think it's much more nuanced uh, i don't think there are any clear red lines um i think later on in this podcast we're going to start discussing you know all the damage that red lines can do um and um, you know, I, I think leaving it more open, more nuanced is, is the way to go. And I think this is what we're seeing here with, with the willingness of the global major uh, brand companies in terms of their appetite to manage. Um, they will retain an appetite to manage. It's just a little bit more suppressed and they're going to grow mostly through franchising. Uh, next up, let's talk about what's going on in India where recently we've seen uh, quite a bit of interesting action, including uh, the news that in the Indian Hotels Company has agreed a joint venture with a new funding partner to take on small hotels. Catherine, you've had a look at this and uh, tell us uh, more. Yes, so IHCL and GIC um, are <coughs> into hotels, distressed, underperforming hotels. They've formed a fund that's all very exciting. Um, it's 30-70 to IHCL. GIC, of course, um, have been very, very active in the sector in the last um, year or so. So I should be interested to see what happens to them going forward. At the moment, this is just in India and yet more signs um, that India really is a place that we all should be getting into. And um, as opposed to, to before, where it really was a place that we should have been getting into, but really actually it wasn't. But now it really is. And um, I actually have been producing all sorts of exciting brands, collection brands, homestay brands, as we know, many, many budget brands, and they're looking to solidify their position in the upscale market with this agreement. And um, so, yes, anyone with a distressed hotel in India, which is really a ton of people, then do give them a call. One of the things that slightly amused me in, in the press release that came out with this, um, IHCL, which of course is the Taj owner, the Taj Hotels owner, um, IHCL described themselves as uh, India's most profitable hotel company. They always used to be the biggest hotel company in India, but um, that, that's now gone to Oyo. Um, but um, clearly IHCL are quite confident they are making more money in the market than Oyo right now. Um, but looking at this, what, what uh, I think the trend here is, is is exactly the same trend we've just been talking about: vertical disintegration. And what the news, well, comparatively new CEO Puneet Chadwal, who's come across from Steigenberger and prior to that uh, from Residor, um, he's he's brought that same uh, asset light approach, and he's now very keen to talk about asset light and talk about how management is going to be the focus for uh, IHCL going forward. And the, the target for 2022 is to have as much as 60% of the properties uh, asset light, uh, rather uh, sold off, so that um, the, the, the majority of the properties in the portfolio will be uh, managed rather than managed and owned. Um, now, what's interesting with this new fund that's been set up, I'm not entirely clear 
uh, as to whether they're going to be injecting existing uh, Taj property into, into it. I think that is potentially on the cards, it, which makes it look a bit like a sort of Accor Invest type vehicle. Although in this case, each individual hotel is going to be in an SPV um, funded separately. So there's, there's not, it's not going to be sort of taking whole slugs of um, um, uh, Taj's together in, in one foul swoop. It will be done on an asset by asset basis. Well, GIC do um, like a bit of Accor Invest, so... <laughs> indeed indeed yes <laughs> yes there is <laughs> i'm not quite sure how, broke. How, how, <laughs> how, how, what the crossover is between the different management bits i'm assuming this is it is run out of a, a completely separate bit of GEIC. there must be some crossover there but uh yeah um but it is uh, i think the distinction is certainly is asset by asset but i, I mean it, it is more vertical integration, more asset light. Um, this is not just a phenomenon in the West. It, it's clearly in the East. And, and certainly uh, Puneet Chatwell is, is taking this to, to India. And uh, before we get on to our third topic, just a reminder that if you like what you hear, then you can read more about uh, what we have to say on these topics by subscribing to Hotel Analyst. Um, and if you need to know how to do that, get along to hotelanalyst.co.uk. Now we're heading back to uh, one of the topics, that another of the topics that was discussed at our Hotel Operations Conference uh, last week, and that was the issue around costs and staffing. Catherine, do you want to run through what you took away from the discussions and the panel sessions? Yes, well, costs are going up, so you can all put your surprised faces on now. It's a shame it's the radio and I can't see them. But um, And staffing costs, of course, are still a huge thing, um, not least because we can't get any staff. Um, somebody memorably told me reasonably recently that they were keeping staffing costs down because they couldn't find any. And um, But it's not really a long-term solution, it turns out. Um, so we heard from... Uh, uh, Julia Ingler Ennismore who talked about 85% um, attrition and things which uh, she was shocked by and when you hear it from somebody who hasn't necessarily been in the industry for a long time where this kind of thing is standard it actually you know it's quite shocking so <laughs> we do need people particularly if you're planning on running luxury hotels or indeed any hotel at all and so we heard a lot of things about what to do how to retain them and it turns out that you have to train them and uh, and you have to give them things like tenancy deposits and you have to generally make an effort. Making an effort isn't something that the sector has particularly been interested in because it's used to drawing on a pool of students and cheap overseas labour and things like that. And then this is the wake up call, which really has been on full klaxon now for the last five years at the very least. Um, but now hopefully people are doing something about it. Um, we'll see if it works. It's interesting that the presentation immediately ahead of that panel uh, was from Hotstats and they drilled down into a whole bunch of line items um, and compare what, what's been going on. And um, the, the presenter looked at uh, um, a number of different areas, looked at utilities, looked at labour costs, looked at uh, sales marketing costs. And interestingly, over the last three years, what, what, what uh, was seen was actually staff costs had been kept under control. Well, it's sure they'd gone up, but not gone up hugely. Similarly, sales and marketing costs had gone up a bit, but not hugely. The thing that had shot up uh, was utility costs and that was quite interesting and that um, the challenges that, that that are there with utility uh, 
looking forward, though, uh, I, I think certainly I asked the question of the panel, you know, wh- what do they think is going to happen um, in the next few years? Um, if the last three years have been pretty good in terms of staffing costs, they, they said actually it's going to get much worse. It, and they are expecting, uh, you know, a, a, a significant bump in terms of the cost of hiring, the cost of retaining. And I think that that should be the emphasis retaining staff, which requires, as Catherine said, training, requires actually better pay, better conditions, all those kind of things. Um, and I think that that ought to be the focus. I mean, that has been the focus for some time of the, 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 the better operators um, and that they'll have to, uh, you know, redouble their efforts. Given what we have ahead of us and given what Chris is about to ask. <laughs> well, I was just about, about to say next. that um, one of the interesting aspects uh, that sort of was, uh, kind of came up on the side was um, companies like 25 Hours, where they don't look to hire from the sector anymore. They look to other places and they look for enthusiastic people and people who want to get involved with big, t- you know, a team that's out there doing something. And um, certainly with the current collapse of the retail sector, one assumes that there will be, uh, there will be people looking for jobs and maybe people who are used to looking at members of the public so there's something to do but of course as Chris is about to say to us the <laughs> collapse of the retail sector is not aided by uh, by recent events so can I ask you <laughs> to talk us a little through a little what's happened in the last week or so in Europe where there's been uh, there's been some interesting elections ah, yes well it's it been a couple of weeks since the last election so <clears throat> Why not? And and certain parties would like there to be another election. I'm not sure there's any appetite for that at the moment. I I can't personally. I I have to as a as a woman. You have to vote. But um, I can see how other people might not. Given another election. Well, it was interesting. The turnout in the Euro elections wasn't. It was. It down, was up, wasn't it? It, it was. Uh, up on the average uh, uh, compared to pre up on the average euro elections but it, it was way below um what you'd see at a general election and certainly way below for what, what the 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 referendum has so um so from from that perspective that the, there isn't a lot of vibrancy around um um europe connected votes i i would suggest um in the uk um particularly um but uh, you know, I, I think there's a whole raft of things the, the, the biggest problem of course if you have another vote um, whichever way it goes they'll just be able to call for another vote and it'll just go on and on and all that never ending thing rears its head which is which is the worst thing about the whole situation i would argue is that this uncertainty it's now creating um and certainly we have this cliff edge scenario which is you know utterly stupid um if we get into it whereby we exit without having any proper agreements and all that kind of thing um gradually about far far too slowly um i'd argue but gradually there does seem to be a, a you know an element of sense creeping in to politicians in in that let's stop faffing around and how we're treating um as in how the uk is treating eu nationals i mean michael gove said Said that EU nationals are going to be able to apply for citizenship in the UK for free. Which why haven't you said that from the outset? Well, because he wasn't running be for PM before the outset. <laughs> oh, but it's, well, why didn't May do it? You know, why done like foreigners? She done that much was I mean, clear. Just... She's uh, she's always had a, a well, bee in her uh... bonnet about immigration. Um, well, you see, you're. <laughs> confusing immigration and immigrants and i think they're yeah, two so the, separate things to say you don't like <laughs> foreigners is, is, it is essentially but, racist so which i don't think it is but immigration is a different thing and i think there are legitimate concerns about the control of immigration i, th- I think you'd 
you know, only a, a really foolish politician would would fail to acknowledge that. And we we do need further, tighter controls. But on but but, but but our foolish so our foolish politicians the industry, don't separate that. Mm. So they do. They right. do. They do. <laughs> They do. Which, which name me a conservative politician that doesn't separate that? Yes, you get the extremists, the fascists, who who, mm. who are playing on this this failure to separate the two. But but you know, I would argue that the Remainers, who who themselves try and argue this and try to portray, you know, um, anybody who has a Brexit position, and I don't have a Brexit position, but anybody who holds a Brexit position, if to portray them as racist, as fun, you know, to have a Brexit. What about position Boris Johnson and his uh, only his feeds boxes. into that? <laughs> well, there you go again. You're trying to create the position of wanting a control on immigration as being racist, and it's not racist. It isn't a racist position to have, and you know, virtually every political party has a, a you know, a, 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 has supported controls on immigration, and indeed, the wider Europe supports controls on immigration, certainly external to Europe. It's this free movement bit within the borders of Europe which has which has been the issue, but the everywhere controls and and certainly if you look at you know what one of the the reasons i think um we have an issue in the uk is that we've been a lot more open in fact i would argue of all the major economies we are the most open to immigration um in terms of making being a friendlier and easier place to come to historically i mean obviously that's been somewhat skewed over the last few years thanks to the Brexit nonsense but historically we have been and we've been very welcoming and open and accessible um, you know I hope we can maintain an element of that while having a sensible degree of you know uh, control on immigration which you know assuming we do go down that Brexit piece but um, um, who, who knows where we are because I think I think what what we've got in terms of Brexit now is you know is this it's still the same old three-way thing. It's either a variant on on the negotiated deal that's on the table, the withdrawal agreement, which is going to be voted on um, and will be voted on again at some point between now and the 31st of October, um, or we have the so-called hard Brexit, which is leaving um, without any formal agreement, or we simply cancel Brexit altogether and there's a revocation of Article 50 which started the whole process. So it, it's one of those three we're going to have uh, sometime between now mm. and the 31st of October. I, I, I really don't think we can I hope to God we don't get another ruddy extension because it's such a mess and I think the Euro, you know, quite rightly I think our European partners you know, are, are completely fed up with the UK no. and they don't no, no, I agree. So I think I think it's one of those three outcomes we're going to get. Um, there's a little bit more crystallisation in terms of the nature and shape of those three outcomes. I think so. We'll see. And you know, and the critical bit is who's going to be the next prime minister, who's going to win the Tory leadership race, and and, and how they react. So it, I would be gobsmacked if there's anything other than a Brexiteer. But it just depends on the type of Brexiteer and whether they actually oversee the disintegration of the Conservative Party. Um, but do you think they're not. going to find themselves um, compelled that, that, to kiss up to the Brexit party? I mean, you, you this know, is the question, I mean, isn't it? Whether they say, actually, be, this happened before and we probably shouldn't have gone down the road of kissing up to Nigel Farage. But 
Will they have they learned some lessons? It's too late now. Isn't <laughs> or are they going to do it again? Uh, no, it's too late. <laughs> the trouble is, is it, <laughs> the the genie's out of the bottle, or whatever, <laughs> whatever metaphor you want to use. I mean, it's too late. It's all is you know we are in the mess, and um, regardless of Brexit, and the only thing that's going to kill off the Brexit party is to deliver some variant mm-hmm. on Brexit, isn't it? Um, that that's the only thing that's going to do that. And so whoever you know, it will be a Brexit team. Yes, I, yes, I that that much is clear. The will of the people and all if, that, if, if, but. It, um, <laughs> well, it's nothing the will of the people; it's the will of the conservative. Their people um, too. Party members but, who are. But, <laughs> yeah, but not the, yes, they're not but, the um, people. But you know, but will they feel that they population. need um, to um, to take this stance given given the uh, recent results? Enough Brexit, and that'll do for this week. Bye for now. <laughs>